Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello and welcome podcast listeners. This is Kevin McPherson and today we will be speaking with two of the authors from an article out of the uh, 2019 iteration of musculoskeletal science and practice. The article is uh, titled an exploration of psychosocial practice within private practice musculoskeletal physiotherapy, a cross-sectional survey. The primary author was Isabella Mann. However, she could not join us for the podcast, but two of her advisors and co-authors are, and that would be Saravana Kumar and Mark Jones. Now, Dr. Kumar is an associate professor and program director at the School of Health Sciences for the University of South Australia, more affectionately known as UniSA. Now, Dr. Kumar has uh, practiced for nearly two decades with professional experience spanning really the three realms of physiotherapy, and that would be clinical practice, research, and teaching. He's joined by Mark Jones. Mark is a senior lecturer uh, also with UniSA in the advanced or sorry, in the Masters of Advanced Clinical Physiotherapy program. And he has 30 years of teaching experience, both at the undergraduate level and the postgraduate uh, physiotherapy level. Now, Mark, Saravana, I just want to welcome you guys to the podcast. How are you guys doing today? Yeah, really good. It's uh, about 10.30 in the morning here in Australia. Yeah, and, and Kevin, thank you very much for offering me and Mark the opportunity to be on this podcast and share some of the findings from our really interesting study. Thank you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, and it's uh, it's interesting because this is one of the first times that we're not exactly talking to the lead author, but we're talking to the conceptual minds behind the study uh, who were second, third uh, authors, and then the fourth author being Ian Edwards. Uh, so it's nice to, to kind of get a grasp of where this study came from, and we're going to do that in a second. But before that, Mark, do you mind giving us kind of an overview of the project and, and what the findings and conclusions were? Sure. We, in 2014, we did a small qualitative study. Uh, the title of that was Physiotherapist Assessment of Patient Psychosocial Status, Are We Standing on Thin Ice? And we were looking at in that practicing clinicians, but just with about six months experience. And what we found was that that small cohort of, of clinicians had a very poor understanding of the role of psychosocial factors in their patients' clinical presentations. They were really unclear about how to assess psychosocial factors. And the main barrier that they put forward to this was their lack of formal education in psychosocial theory and assessment. Trying to extend this small qualitative study we did to the current study with Isabella, which was trying to look at a much larger group. And it gave us a, a sort of a better idea of what that small study, how representative that was. The, the Participants were, again, musculoskeletal physiotherapists working in private practice, and 
it was a survey that explored a range of things. Um, basically, we were interested in what psychosocial factors they were assessing, if any, how they performed those assessments. We're interested in the confidence they had in, in doing that and whether the factors they did identify in assessment were then addressed in management. And lastly, were there any barriers um, if they did have have problems or lack of confidence in this area? And perhaps a little bit surprising because it went against the, the trend of the, the research up till, up till then was that most of the participants, they had moderate confidence, you know, in their psychosocial understanding and their application of it. Most of them um, assessed with confidence by a combination of a general impression that they gained through their, their patient examination, but also through explicit questions that they, they asked patients during the, the interview. What they didn't do was use questionnaires routinely, and they had sort of quite varying and lower confidence in knowing which questionnaires to use to, to better inform this area of, of assessment. And they had less confidence in knowing who to refer to if that was judged to be necessary, or if they referred to another health professional, such as a psychologist, they had less confidence in co-managing patients with that other health professional. They were confident in management um, from this sort of combination of agree and strongly strongly agree, and that's and that's management of, of a range of factors, cognitive factors, um, emotional factors, behavior, social factors. So overall, there was quite surprisingly amounts of confidence. And then lastly, the, the main finding around barriers was a number of barriers came up that were also reported in previous research, time being a barrier to, to add this to their, their other dimensions of more diagnostic physical management and assessment, patients' expectations, um, and then once again, lack of formal psychosocial education, which we had also found in our previous research. So that's kind of a an overview snapshot of what led to the research and, and the main findings. Sarah, Vetta, I'm going to ask this next question to you, even though it really is a follow-up to Mark's statement. So we were looking at confidence being higher than expected when it came to assessing into treatment. Uh, would you say that the study found a difference or, or an important difference in the makeup or the background of the respondents uh, compared to the average Australian physiotherapist in musculoskeletal care? It's, it's a good question, Kevin. And uh, I probably want to answer that uh, by taking one step back and talking about the methodology with which we collected the data. Is that all right if I just take one step back? That is perfectly fine. Um, just reflecting on what Mark was saying in terms of um, uh, our previous uh, research in this space, the previous study in 2014, the small qualitative study was undertaken by an, another honor student, Mukul Singler, who happens to be uh, one of our graduates and the practicing physio, physiotherapist here in Adelaide. And so when we got together, Mark, Ian and I, to say, how can we extend that study? We wanted to... Uh, um, 
look at other methodologies which we could use to capture wider range of uh, physiotherapist perspectives because an inherent limitation of qualitative because it's looking at in-depth exploration we're always limited in terms of sample uh, sample size and so on and so when Isabella came on board one of the first things we did was we said let's see if there is an existing questionnaire that we could use to capture um, uh, these issues the psychosocial issues that we wanted to understand and it became really apparent very quickly that there wasn't a uh, an actual questionnaire available uh, and that that basically identified to us that to date there hasn't been any large-scale studies which have captured um, physiotherapist perspectives about uh, assessment and management of psychosocial uh, issues in, in, in clinical practice. And that's why we ended up developing the Triple P questionnaire, which was customized to answer these, these relevant questions, because we could then, then look at a larger number, of, uh, larger number of people in our study. Um, and uh, and from that we obviously did a did a survey and we did it at a national level because we wanted to extend our previous qualitative study which was based in Adelaide to now go into Australia and as a result as you know the 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 responses to the survey was about the response rate was about 20 percent um, the there are some issues in terms of having a response rate of 20 percent uh, even though that is quite acceptable in terms of um, uh, what we see in survey methodology. We are very careful, Kevin, in terms of uh, making sure that we try and maximize our responses. So we capture the the, the, the physiotherapist would be responding to it. We gave it, we put a number of strategies in place. But what research has shown us in terms from a survey methodology is that over time there has been a decrease in survey participation. Not just, uh, I'm not talking specific about physios, when we look at clinicians, doctors, nurses, any clinician for that matter, generally there has been a, a gradual decline in the in the response rate. I guess the reason for it is because, you know, demanding work schedule, uh, uh, often these, um, these clinicians are oversubscribed in terms of uh, participating in surveys. And with, with Isabella, we also consider you know, how best to administer the survey as well. You know, are there different modes of administration? Do we do a telephone survey? Do we do a, a mail out and so on? And again, the evidence is mixed. What we do know is that the, if you are providing people with some incentives, like you know, you, you'll go in a draw to get some money, then the survey uh, rate tends to be a little bit higher. Uh, uh, about uh, greater than 50%. But when there's no incentive provided, which is what we did, and that's purely because of the limitation associated with it being a honor study, the, the response rate tends to be lesser than uh, lesser than 30%, which is similar to what we found. But the acceptable range is anything from 6 to 70%. So that tells you how wide the, 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 the response rates tends to be. Now, the reason I'm flagging the methodology is because that influenced the type of person who actually responded to that particular our survey. Uh, so, so when when we look at does the does the background characteristic of the respondents really refer or represent an average physio? Probably not, given that the average physio has about 13 years of experience, and in our case, nearly 60% of our respondents had more than 20% 20 years of experience. Um, uh, and also a large percentage of our respondents actually had a clinical master's as well, whereas the, the national stats tells us that only 71% as a bachelor as being the highest one. 
so it probably highlights the um, the uh, the awareness and interest in this topic. So the people who are genuinely interested, genuinely had a had um, uh, had a focus on psychosocial uh, issues, managing and, and and assessing and managing this in clinical practice were the ones who actually participated in this survey. So when you consider that, I do think that that the sample we got is representative of this particular group. So does that answer your question, Kevin? That's a longer longer about way of answering that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that gives the listener a lot of information to to think about when it comes to the research design. Which half of what we're trying to do with the podcast is to help out with our listeners' ability to understand the research that's being provided to them, not necessarily just the the discussion and possibly the results, but also some of the background work that has to be done. So I think that's very helpful. Now, when we look at the, the, the raw information and that those respondents and the, the likelihood of them being uh, maybe a little bit more interested in this subject matter. Uh, I couldn't help but think of some of the work that Gail Jensen did when they were looking at expert practice and how there's a, a utilization of narrative reasoning, which has been kind of associated with getting a more rich understanding of the person in front of you, which arguably is what uh, biopsychosocial seems to have brought a little bit more to the forefront with. Uh, am I reading too much into that? Do you think there might be some sort of correlation with that and the correlation with the fact that your group had such a large number of practitioners that were likely a little bit more in that expert phase of their career? Um, I'm happy to respond on that. I'm, I'm very familiar with, with Gail Jensen's work and, and, I wouldn't suspect, and we didn't ask this, but I wouldn't suspect that most or many Australian musculoskeletal physiotherapists would even be familiar with the phrase narrative reasoning. So they, they will be familiar with psychosocial factors and then with that psychosocial assessment and management. They are going to be much less familiar with linking that to a focus of reasoning such as narrative reasoning so I, I, I don't think they will explicitly think in those terms it probably captures one of the challenges though because I again going back to our own experiences with our undergraduate and postgraduate students you know, when they theoretically understand what biopsychosocial constitutes and the, the components of it, and they're even, they understand strategies and ways to assess that. The, uh, another hurdle in all of that is, is how to integrate that into their clinical reasoning. So make the assessments, but then how do you make the clinical judgments, whether you a particular psychosocial factor is contributing or not contributing, or at least hypothesize in that way, so that you then decide you will add it to something you target in your management or, or not necessarily need to add it. And we see that as a real gap. We think it's, it's a real challenge to actually teach that. But the bigger challenge isn't to sort of conceptually teach it. The bigger challenge is to get it to translate to practice. So we like to think we teach that, not just what 
it means and how you can assess it and how you can make clinical judgments around it. But to then get them to do it in the clinic is the biggest hurdle. And I think that's what all previous research has, has really shown around the whole psychosocial domain, that translation to practice is the biggest problem. And, and we were discussing before this podcast, you know, future research projects on on literally looking at both at clinicians, but we, we have a real academic interest in looking at our clinical educators and their skill sets in being able to facilitate this, this area of practice in their students. Because of course it all falls down if the students aren't mentored in actually doing this with their real patients. That pretty much reflected what we, when we did the correlation uh, uh, statistics with uh, Isabella's work as well. Because even though you would have thought that um, years of experience and postgraduate education would actually influence what they did, the confidence in psychosocial practice, we actually didn't find any um, any significant correlation because we, we think the challenges that is in the translation part, um, the uh, uh, despite having the knowledge and the skills to be able to do it and they, which influences their confidence, being able to apply it into clinical practice seems to be a, 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 an important barrier that we need, we as a profession need to address in this space. So if, if, we're, if the, the end goal is to be able to help students or, or at that, that earlier level of education, if that is the, the pinnacle of what we're trying to do to get them to not only be able to assess biopsychosocial, but also intervene appropriately, uh, do you think that we might be uh, a little bit ahead of the cart with the findings here, given that the practitioners that were responding said that there was a tendency to use uh, general observation and specific questioning uh, when we've got articles like Bruner's article where it says that therapists aren't really good at identifying that and that it was recommended that for you to identify that you should have an, a measure for it. So uh, I just, uh, I think I'm having a little bit of a disconnect when it comes to are they actually truly confident in assessing that or do they think they are and they really aren't? And if they don't, then even trying to translate that into treatment is difficult since you don't know what you're seeing. No, I, I think it's, it's a good question. And, and I think the first step is it, it highlights a limitation of, of, survey research so what we're getting is these participants self reports on their what they do routinely and their confidence in doing that it's it's not an observation of them and so we we don't know if what they say is is accurate um so that's that's the first thing up up front we However, we, we would say from our academic experience that um, students often have an elevated level of confidence in you know, their understanding and their ability to apply. You know, in particular, um, this is sort of psychosocial because we, they get a lot of theory around this. So they, they believe they know it. They may have done well on theory assessments on the topic. But in the clinic, when you actually watch them 
and I mean, it's like, for example, in the assessment phase, they have to be prompted. They fall back into the habits of focusing on the patient's physical status um, in very biomedically oriented examinations, and they have to be prompted to to do what they've been taught in, in class, to screen psychosocial. And we, we would say both in the interview, because we think that's really important source of information, but also with follow-up questionnaires. So you're right, you do have to have very specific, I would call them categories of information that you need to be clear that you're going to listen for, because obviously a lot of it comes out spontaneously, but then specifically screen for when it doesn't come out. And then you need to have the criteria on how you're going to judge it and then strategies for how to address it in the management. And so I, I think there probably is a mismatch between, you know, self-report confidence and reality. At least I can say that in my, you know, undergraduate and postgraduate students. Now, these were practicing musculoskeletal physiotherapists. They're Maybe they may not be that mismatch. My my guess is there is still, and uh, and that's just the difference between you know self report and observation. Uh, uh, well, an area that I'm I'm interested in as part of my research is looking at implementing best practice in 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 healthcare. Uh, and uh, slightly moving away from this particular area, but more broadly about implementing best practice. Uh, and what uh, research tells us is that often clinicians have um, good intentions about implementing best practice, but when it actually comes to doing, and as, as Mark flagged before, they tend to revert back to what they traditionally or historically have done because of barriers that they encounter during their clinical encounter uh, um, with the patient. And what we found, um, as well with this particular research, when we asked about what are the barriers for them to assess and manage psychosocial practice, in addition to the factors that Mark mentioned in terms of lack of a lack of formal training and PD in, in psychosocial education, time and patient expectations were also important barriers. So while research tells us that they need to be using measures to be able to accurately capture and record and evaluate it in an ongoing capacity, perhaps what they are actually are confronted when they are, when they are seeing a patient is the practical barriers that happens in clinical practice, like the time that, that is required for them to administer these questionnaires, patient expectations, where a patient expectation might be that I'm here to see a physio, why am I filling out so many questionnaires? So the, as with any research I'm sure you're familiar with, this research actually highlights more questions that we need to explore. And one of the key questions that has come up that Mark and I are really keen to explore further is that what happens at that pointy end of care? Uh, what, what are these barriers and how can we help clinicians overcome those barriers? So yeah, I agree with you and Mark as well. There is really a disconnect and, and something happens at that pointy end of care that we need to unpack and understand better. So speaking to the the one comment, uh, the general joke is the the final conclusion of every meta analysis is that more <laughs> more research is needed. So, uh, and, and I, you know, as 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 clinical scientists and also uh, for the researchers who are more of that pure scientist. It, the, the, that's the draw to it, right? It, it's asking more questions and finding more questions and learning more. So um, I see where it could definitely get frustrating, but at the same time, it's exciting to, to have these new questions pop up. 
because there are different ways of looking at the world, right? Completely. And there are so many knowledge gaps in this area, Kevin. There are so many knowledge gaps. And all we have, all we have done is answered one, one knowledge gap, and there are still several to, to address. And that's the beauty of, uh, of research is that you, you get to explore further and unpack further um, uh, uh, things that you didn't even know that, uh, that existed until you did this research. You know, I, I might just add a, my two bits on that as well. And it sort of relates to the complexity of, of, a, of a clinical examination generally, but particularly one that is truly biopsychosocial. And if you watch what, what I would call expert clinicians in this space, so we have what we call specialist um, physiotherapists who gone, who've gone through ev- extra levels of, of training and qualification in Australia, and and you can specialize in different areas of practice. So there'd be there'd be those who would be more specialized in in definitely pain and biopsychosocial practice. And th- there isn't a not surprisingly there isn't a protocol that you can simply capture and then just convey that to the next group of of learners on how to do this. But you take something like time because what what you'll often see in these really skilled therapists is they do an awful lot of screening, not just of psychosocial, but also of biomedical factors. And they, they have a set amount of time to see a patient. They know they have to get an overview and they know they have to be careful not to be too biased. So just because it's been a, a problem of six month duration, they can't ignore physical factors and assume it's psychosocial. So they, they're going to be very thorough, but you can't do it all in a certain time frame. So typically they'll have strategies which, such as screening to pick up probable factors in a patient's presentation. And some of those factors will be potential psychosocial factors that they pick up, but they won't necessarily pursue that line of questioning with, say, one patient right at that moment because they know in the time frame they have, there's a lot else they have to assess. But what they do is they don't miss it. They've picked it up in their screening. They've, they've recorded it. They know it's something that they're going to come back to. And whether it's later in that appointment or it's in a subsequent appointment, they come back and revisit that topic and more thoroughly explore it. And I think some of those sort of you know, subtle skills in our profession to be able to examine thoroughly within the time constraints that we work under, you know, they're not usually attended to. Um, and they're not a formal part of our research or, or even our training. Uh, so real quickly, Mark, since this podcast does focus a little bit more towards the American variants uh, or the American chapter underneath IFOMT. Do you mind just giving the listeners a, a rough idea of kind of what a standard time frame that a, a clinician would be able to see a patient and how often that may occur for uh, for a patient? Yeah, I'll give you my my. Um, experiential opinion, Saravana might be able to, he might be aware of actual numbers around this, um, but you'd find not a specialist because they're going to typically have more time. So if you, if you talk about 
So we, we have a, a tiered system in Australia. So when you when you finish, our entry level degree is either a, a bachelor's degree or a graduate entry master's degree. And if, if you finish at that level, most of those clinicians will um, probably have between 30 and 40 minutes for a new patient appointment, and then they'd have between 20 and 30 minutes for a follow-up appointment. And that would be similar for the next tier. The next tier is if you've done postgraduate clinical master's degree, they would similarly have sort of 30 to 40 initial and, and probably 30 minute, 20 to 30 minute follow-up appointments. As, how, as far as how often they see, uh, in my years, um, that's just changed dramatically. Um, and sadly, it's often changed according, according to in, insurer um, allocations. You know, it used to be if they allowed you 10 appointments with a patient, the therapist used all 10 of them. So when they, when they change, sadly, the therapist changed, which isn't really the right reason to, to choose it. Now, I think you'd see that in a typical musculoskeletal practice, and this is a broad spectrum of acute with some chronic patients, they would see patients on average one to two times a week. And that might continue for three to four weeks, but with ideally those appointments being gradually spread out and and reduced over time. Hopefully with a very strong emphasis on patient understanding and and self-management. Uh, yeah, very similar to Mark's experience as well as mine, Kevin, is that uh, um, the time periods Mark was talking about is pretty reflective of what happens in clinical practice. I have heard uh, in some places in Australia a, subs- uh, a subsequent appointment lasting only 15 minutes, uh, which which I think as a clinician is, is quite challenging to do. But given that some of these, uh, some of the drivers for seeing patients is output, um, some clinics do have 15-minute subsequent consultations. Uh, but generally, if you're a new graduate student, they tend to be, they give a little bit more time because you do need to get your skills up in in in, in clinical. But as you progress into um, a more experienced physio, uh, uh, a new consultation might last between 30 to 40 minutes and a subsequent consultation go for any anything from 15 and if you're lucky you might get 30 minutes but it pretty much depends on uh, depends on the practice environment you're actually based at and that i think that gives our listeners a little bit better understanding of uh, what you were going through in your your discussion mark about the maybe they're 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 assessing for some of these other aspects, the psychosocial aspects, uh, but they might not be coming back to them because of time limitations uh, to the next time. Since those time periods you guys just gave me are definitely a little bit shorter than uh, what is often considered normal across most of uh, the U.S., which are 45 minutes to an hour for the first session, and oftentimes overlap with other patients, but your follow-ups are also somewhere between 45 minutes to an hour. Now, one thing that I try to do with students when we look at uh, that biopsychosocial framework is to try to re-establish the psychosocial components as impairments too. 
just like you would need to look at the impairments and weigh the importance of the impairments and the bang for the buck for treating those impairments. I've tried to take more of that. Well, the psychosocial is an impairment and we need to weigh that as well. Is that something that you've tried? Have you had success with it? Have you uh, got any insight that you might be able to provide? We would agree. And we, we have tried. We, it, it sort of parallels our philosophy as well. Um, and when it's an undergraduate um, or even a postgraduate student who didn't have this training as an undergraduate, you know, they, they need a structure. So they need to be given a, a structure of an examination. And that structure needs to include psychosocial and it needs to break psychosocial down into psychological and social and needs to break psychological down into what do we mean when we say that. So we and we we do that. We give our students what that means. And here are categories. We don't give them the words per se to we don't force them into questions, but these are the, the areas you need to explore and, and listen for. So we, we give them that structure across that. And then you're right, and, and think of them in a similar way that you think about physical impairments. I mean, it's amazing to watch an examination of an undergraduate or postgraduate student and watch what they record because most of their recording is on physical findings, very, very little on psychosocial, even when it's coming out. It's coming out spontaneously. It's coming out in answers to questions. It doesn't get documented. So it doesn't, it's not given the same priority. Um, and then of course you have that challenge of, of judging whether you you think it's contributing to the problem, whether it's driving the problem, whether it's a consequence. There's a lot of reasoning that needs to go on, but that has to be understood and practiced. So I think that's a that's a nice way to think about it, but it, I guess it just shows us, it illustrates that challenge that we have in education to get that across. It is a challenge and at UNISA, we've tried to address it in different ways. Um, We've tried to create an, an ecology of uh, psychosocial um, uh, content throughout our undergraduate and postgraduate programs. For example, in the undergraduate program, right from first year, we introduced our students to the concept of uh, uh, psychosocial issues, recognizing that uh, that uh, uh, biomed the limitations associated with biomedical model and then when they come to second year there is an uh, a separate course which not surprisingly is called biopsychosocial practice which 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 gives them a number of theoretical and practical um, tools yeah on 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 this particular concept uh, the the reason we try to do that is that one in first year across number of courses by introducing psychosocial issues and psychosocial aspects it scaffolds them these these contents to that by the time they come to second year they're ready to engage it in 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 an entire uh, standalone course and and our belief is that by doing that when they start going to clinical placements uh, we start our clinical placements in our undergraduate program from third year. There is an observational placement in second year, but in terms of hands-on doing stuff, it starts in third year. So the first year and second year is all the theoretical aspects, and second year they have a standalone course of biopsychosocial practice. And then by the time they hit third year, we we hope and we we believe that they are uh, they have this knowledge, skills, and uh, attitudes to be able to engage in that space. But like Mark has correctly identified, 
we still struggle because they still go into the physical first, um, uh, um, even though there might be quite overt psychosocial issues that's just jumping at them. But we are trialing, and uh, and as I said to you, we are trying to create an ecology of uh, of psychosocial content so that it's not seen as ah oh, here is uh, here is something that is that I think uh, it's good to good to know and not necessarily worry about it when I actually go to clinical practice. So we actually try to scaffold it over time as well. Uh, just from a time standpoint, we do have to start closing this down. And so the, the last thing I would say, if you were a clinician uh, and you were practicing and you had to interpret the, the outcome of this study, what do you think the action step is for that clinician? What, what, what should be their take home and what they should do next? Sarah Van and I discussed this a little bit, and and we we would hope that anybody reading this study would reflect on their own practice. You know, that's what the, that's really what this kind of when you publish this sort of research is about, trying to get people to to think about it and to think about how they practice. And so we would encourage the reader to to ask yourself about your understanding of the, the, the construct psychosocial, um, as well as biopsychosocial, but particularly psychosocial. And then we'd encourage them to break that down Often we might wait for the perfect moment, um, and uh, you know we might say, "Look, I'm going to from next tomorrow, I'm going to do this," or from I, I read more articles, and then I'm going to start doing it. I, I don't, I don't think it, waiting for the perfect moment it really is required. So between those two responses, I'm hearing a need to reflect. Uh, on your current practice, reflect on uh, ways that your practice may or may not change and, and needing to implement and, and try to put in these changes. Don't wait for the perfect moment or whatnot, which leads me to a question that we ask a lot of our fellows uh, in the U.S. and obviously our, our, our cousins in, in different countries. If I look at those things. Fellowship tends to force you to do those things. Maybe not always so so much on just the psychosocial, but at least you're doing that within some sort of framework. So the question we often ask is, what would you guys uh, say to somebody who's considering fellowship training or, or that specialty training? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I mean, you're you're talking to a, a biased. Um, sample here because both Sarah Vanna and I have gone through uh, and, and done a, a clinical master's degree in this area. And, you know, I, I'm sure Sarah Vanna would agree it had a huge impact um, on our clinical practice and then eventually on our, our, our academic teaching skill sets. And so I think if it's possible, and I say if because it's naive to think everybody can can do this because our lifestyles are all different. So if it's possible, I would say get in and, and do it. If it's not possible to do it through a formal training program, there are other strategies. Finding some degree of mentorship. To me, choosing a place where, for starters, as a new graduate, you're not the most senior therapist, so you have other um, skilled clinicians around you, ideally some with postgraduate training, and ideally a, a, a practice culture that is 
is developmental. Yeah, completely agree, Kevin. I can't uh, emphasize what Mark said strongly. Uh, uh, of one, one, one final point I would add is that the when we talk to experienced physios nowadays, they always come back to this the saying that it's the basics that matter. It's to build your skills in some of these really critical foundational concepts. Uh, it will it will change you as a physio. The way you see the patient, the way you see the world will be completely changed. So could not recommend it highly. The last thing that we ask our guests is to help our listeners uh, connect with you guys. So uh, do you guys mind just offering up some good ways to contact you for our listeners uh, if they have some follow-up questions for you? You know, we're we're happy to be contacted by clinicians, by by academics, and and by researchers. We're we're constantly um, interested in collaboration. It's just our name in front of our university. So mine is Mark Jones at unisa edu au. And uh, mine is uh, Saravana s a r a v a n a dot Kumar, K-U-M-A-R, at UniSA, U-N-I-S-A dot E-D-U dot A-U. Well, that's excellent, Saravana. Mark, I greatly appreciate your time and greatly appreciate all the efforts you guys put forth to enhance the knowledge base of practicing physios. I hope you guys have a wonderful uh, day. Great. Thanks, Kevin. And thank you once again for the opportunity, Kevin. We we are very keen to engage with the wider audience and opportunities like this helps us to disseminate and touch base with people who normally we will not have access to. So thank you once again. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.